I have absolutely no idea what we're doing here, or what I'm doing here, or what this place is about, but I am determined to enjoy it. Now you want to talk about reading? Let's talk about reading. Let me tell you of the days of high adventure. The book served as a passageway to the evil worlds beyond. Ready to go, Doc? Oh, yes, yes, my dear fellow, I'll... Just the Hello and welcome back to the Appendix N Book Club. I'm Jeff and with me today is the buxom daughter of King Fredrugo of Zingara, also known as Hoy. <laughs> uh, with the proud globular breasts. <laughs> 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 yes, that's me. <laughs> <laughs> and joining us today is the illustrator of Iran's Challenge, Escape from Demon Inn, Mother's Maze, and The Temple of the Hamster, and has also illustrated uh, various projects uh, with uh, the Gong Farmer's Almanac. We've got Carmen Vance. Hi. Hi, Carmen. Hey, Carmen. So my favorite part of every episode of the Appendix and Book Club podcast is your introduction of Hoy. (laughs) 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 Well, thank you. Those are fun. But also, this is that's a really thematic introduction to this book. (laughs) (laughs) It's right out there. They're out there and they're loving it. All right. So, Carmen, thank you for joining us. Uh, we're going to go ahead and ask you the uh, the cliche origin story questions here. So, uh, what is your role-playing game origin story? Um, it's kind of similar to a lot of people's. Um, <laughs> I, I was a sad and lonely kid. Um, <laughs> but uh, I had some friends that were playing uh, Vampire the Masquerade. This was like... Mm. So it's like in middle school and I begged to join the campaign and they, they were like, no. (laughs) (laughs) Oh no. Oh no. Uh, Well, that sounds bad, but they, they said, you know, oh, it's, it'll be really hard to work somebody into the campaign at this point. So like when we start a new one, um, then you can play with us. Okay. Oh, that's awesome. And, and then I moved. Oh (laughs) no. (laughs) Um, but Eventually, so I I ended up moving to Colorado f- to go to college, um, and a friend of mine's dad, uh, he was really, really into first edition D&D, and unfortunately, he ended up passing, uh, but he left me his books. Oh, wow. Okay. Cool. And it was just, like, we had chatted about D&D here and there, but... Uh, he gave me everything, like Fiend Folio, like five players' guides, the DMG, um, Monster Manual. And, uh, yeah, I tricked some friends into playing with me. And uh, I, you know, I stayed in first edition for a really long time. Like, that was that was the system for me. And I was um, a little bit snobbish about other systems. Um and then I came around to uh, like astonishing swordsmen and sorcerers of Hyperborea, and um, of course DCC. And DCC is what really won me over. And then I just started playing every system I could get my hands on. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that's my origin story. That's, that's awesome. Kind of- and once you had these AD and D books in your hands, and you tricked your friends into playing, were you running the games, or did you trick one of them into running it? I tricked one of them into running it. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I, I don't like t- 
talking and people looking at me. So running games is like, I enjoy it once I'm in it, but it's not necessarily like a natural thing for me. What did you think of the 18 book D books as objects, as, as an artist? Did you like appreciate them as these weirdo, like things from the past? That's what got me. I I love outsider art and objectively you can look at the illustrations and go, these aren't necessarily technically good. Um, But you know, it's like a lot of uh, golden age comic book artists. The art isn't, technically perfect but it's very exciting Mm -hmm. um it's very impressionistic it causes that emotional reaction um so the art is really what pulled me in and then i tried to understand the math of it all because when you're just coming into DD and you're you've never played it you don't know anybody that plays it you're trying to figure out in your head exactly what this game will look like a lot of it is uh it's an initiatory experience. Mm -hmm. So you're trying to understand this ritual from an outsider perspective, and it doesn't necessarily make sense until you're playing it. And I think a lot of people have the experience of um, playing it wrong with their friends. Right. (laughs) And that just became the way you did it. Um, You know, like we do initiative wrong. We do like we we do to hits wrong. We do everything wrong, but we're still playing it and it works. Uh, and I think that just speaks to um, the malleability of the system, right. you yeah. know, that it can suit so many people right. as long as you're playing. You know? I think you have literally the primal AD&D experience just like 20 years later than most people. That's fascinating. It's still that it has this sort of sort of um, incantor- incantatory power that it yeah. still has. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and you're you're based in Cincinnati, and you know you're there with uh, with Todd Bunn from Gateway Games, and uh, Tim Kask, uh, the TSR uh, Luminary, is there as well. Do you do you ever get to play with Tim Kask? I've never gotten to play with him, but okay. he did he did sign my books, <laughs> nice, <laughs> which was incredibly nice of him. Um, <laughs> and yeah, he's just uh, he's a treasure. And it's great to have him here. Like, even if, you know, I don't get to game with him um, Mm. very often. Uh, But yeah, we have uh, a really great community here in Cincinnati. And a lot of it's centered around Todd Bond. Like he, he makes people want to game. He, he's interested in what people are playing. Um, You know, he's done a lot, especially for the OSR um, and for indie indie game companies just making sure that stuff is on the shelf and organizing games giving people table space um and it's not just about having the space available but having a safe space to play um you know because i think a lot of us have had the experience at game stores where you don't necessarily feel welcome yeah um but he's uh yeah, he, he makes sure that everybody feels welcome. Right, right. Really I mean, he nice. looks like the prototypical grog, right? But he's definitely yeah. just, you know. Yeah. <laughs> but he's just an incredibly warm being, human being. Definitely. Like we've had him on the show. Definitely. Um, so yeah, he's you, a sweetheart. So you've had, you had the actual physical artifact, the DMG. And like, did you become aware of Appendix N, like, relatively early on? Or did it take you a while to discover this in the back of the, you know, in the back of the book? I think after the art, that was the next thing I looked at. And... 
it took me a while to really explore Appendix N like as its own entity because I, I mean, I had already read a lot of those books, but <clears throat> I think, uh, and you know, so I sort of wrote it off and it was like, oh, well, you know, I don't really like this author. That was kind of cheesy. Um, so having to delve into Appendix N with an eye toward how it influenced D and D—it's um, been a really different experience. Mm-hmm. Um, I gotta say, like, um, kind of going into it with a more open mind. Like, I, I've discovered Lord Dunsany, and he's one of my favorite authors now. So, and he reads so modern. Right. Uh-huh. Right. He's—he's he's one of the few people from the late 1800s, early 1900s that used paragraphs. <laughs> right. right. <laughs> <laughs> And, like, you could just dump him into the magical realism genre, uh, right. you know, of, like, the 40s through the 70s, and he would fit right in. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. Yeah, I mean, I could definitely see, um, he, I don't know if he's popular in translation, but I could definitely see him being popular in translation in Latin America or something like that, you know? Oh, yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. that would be cool. So, uh, yeah, so today we're discussing Conan the Buccaneer, and let's go ahead and chat about which version of the book that we're working with today. Uh, Carmen, which version are you working with? Um, I have the Ace Books printing from 1971 with Mm -hmm. the really cool uh, Frazetta cover. Nice. Yeah, I like it. He's he's like using his biceps to like press his pecs together to get himself like this manly man cleavage. Right. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, it's just the globular breasts and the main the main pecs. <laughs> yeah, I think I have the uh, same. Uh, might not be the literal same printing. I think mine is a 1977 printing, but the same trade dress and everything. So the Ace edition. And similarly, I've got the Lancer. But it's it's the same art and it's just a slightly different design on the cover. Um, but yeah, we've got this Frazetta illustration where Conan is just standing atop hordes of corpses. As and, one does. Oh, and there's a there's a butt. <laughs> there's always a butt. There's always there's, there are there are always like firm male buttocks in in Frank Frank Frazetta art as well. <laughs> he likes the thick boys. He does, yes. He does. <laughs> Right. <laughs> All right. So before we go into the library, let's discuss our high Gaxian word of the day. Spurious. Spurious. And spurious appears on page 26 in my edition. And what do we have here? It says, he had a flavor of spurious gentility, a touch of theatrical flamboyance, and more than a touch of the piratical or pirat- piratical. And spurious means not being what it purports to be, false or fake. There you go. That's a good word. Good now, word. Carmen, rumor has it that you've got a few candidates for a Hygaxian word of the day as well. Uh, I do. One I don't actually know how to pronounce, and I couldn't find it online. Um, <laughs> Chirurgian on page yes. 39. Uh, it gave me pause just because I thought, um, you know, Ace books like there's a lot of cheap fast printing and i thought it was just a misprinting of surgeons so i had to look it up but it essentially means the same thing um but uh yeah my favorite word maunder uh to talk in a rambling manner it's page go. 58 right that is the theme of our show 
<laughs> what about you, Hoy? Um, I found one, which I do not know how to pronounce. Uh, it's on page 52. It's when Zorono is sitting in the cabin of his ship, brooding over a silver goblet set with uncut smaragds. S-M-A-R-A-G-D-S. And it turns out nice. that it is a archaic term for green, any kind of green gem, but possibly specifically emeralds. So... Very go. cool. I feel that's got to be a decamp word, by the way. No way that's a Lynn Carter word. <laughs> <laughs> and Chirurgeon is also a, a non is an NPC class in the first year's Gong Farmer's Almanac. Oh, nice. There you go. Yeah, I believe it was written by James McGeorge. And that's it's just so like obscure. really like messed up uh, surgeon character that you can go to for healing but you roll on a table and they're like, uh, they're like replacing your limbs with like the limbs of dead people <laughs> and like really bad things can happen. The more and more you visit the Chirurgeon. So, so basically he's Jeffrey Combs in like her. her yes. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> I want to, I want to play that class, but like with a really low intelligence. <laughs> <laughs> that would work. Totally. That would work. All right. So let's head on into the library. Uh, Carmen, I guess first I'll ask, how much uh, Conan have you read before this? Um, I think I might have read a few Conan books in high school. Okay. But I didn't really think much of them. And I love the Carl Edward Wagner Conans. Um, mm-hmm. And, uh, oh, uh, what was that? You know, Kane. it escapes me. Kane? But yeah. as a thank you, the Kane yeah. books, fantastic. Yeah. Um, I... Conan is kind of like a pastiche genre, uh, kind of like Sherlock. Like a lot of people have written Conan books um, and they all add to like the mystery of Conan, but I can't say I've picked out one versus the other. So this is the first Conan book I've read in at least 20 years. Okay. And what did you think of it? (sighs) (laughs) (laughs) Um. Okay, so I tried reading it twice. Second time I was successful. Um, And my first page of notes, uh, it was essentially just on chapter one. It just says psychic boobs. (laughs) 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 And this book is so Lynn Carter. Like, it's so full of Lynn Carterisms. (laughs) Everything about the character, like, she can't do anything without being buxom. (laughs) <laughs> she had she had a drink of water bustily. <laughs> uh, so, like, yes, it's it's a genre piece, um, but it, it took me a while to get into it. Uh, yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. And we were chatting about this in the um, in the patron book club beforehand. But I was talking about how uh, what was it on page twenty? And this is what uh, Hoy was referencing earlier. Um, horror filled her. A sob of loathing shook her rounded body, her full young breasts, <laughs> proud proud globes of pale tan under the lacy veils rose and fell. <laughs> proud globes of pale tan. <laughs> you know, <laughs> Lynn Car- I don't know that Lynn Carter has ever seen a breast, and that's <laughs> fine. That's totally fine. Um, and I- I I really like him because he's so enthusiastic. <laughs> um, 
Like, I I genuinely think, like, I know this was a, a team up between El Sprague de Camp and Len Carter, but I think that it was at least 90% Len Carter. Mm. Um, just the the really enthusiastic but heavy-handed prose. <laughs> right. um, he's, uh, you know, he's a fanboy, and right. that's great. Like, I love that. But it's, you know, it gets a little cringy in places. Right. Yeah. Um, it's yeah. like the uh, small press cone. You know, when the comic book artists, they first start out and they do small press before they get picked up by like Marvel or DC. Yes. <laughs> right. They don't have the anatomy quite right. It's like early Rob Liefeld with the breast pointing in different directions. <laughs> that was fantastic. Yeah. Oh my God. <laughs> so, um, but it's funny. You do bring that up. It's an interesting point about like, what is the division between DeCamp and Carter? And uh, some people have said that most of the DeCamp and Carter um, partnership was really DeCamp doing like an outline and then Carter writing most of the prose and then handing back to Camp for uh, you know another pass. Mm-hmm. I feel like um, you're right that it's probably at least 50% plus Carter, especially all the stuff like in the sort of Africa analog. Oh, I do think all the nautical yeah. stuff is, is DeCamp because that kind of stuff is like DeCamp is like, you know, an engineer. He's super precise about like his terms of like how the ships work. And that, that's my feeling. That's, that stuff is DeCamp, pure DeCamp. And then all the other stuff is, you know, you're right, it's probably Carter. So, but, yeah. And, but, boy, how yeah. did you feel about reading Conan the Buccaneer? I was saying, again, in the book club that I was expecting to hate this because I really feel like they don't really have a handle on Conan in the short stories. But with the novel, it had more room to breathe. And so, although it's not 100% Howard Conan, it's still pretty good. It's, like, better than average sword and sorcery. It's slightly better it's better than average conan pastiche it's still not good conan but it's better than average conan pastiche and it's like three and a half out of five stars sword and sorcery in my mind three mm-hmm. three star conan three and a half star sword and sorcery um so yeah it had a plot it moved along the stuff in you know the africa analog is problematic but in a sort of 70s way rather than in a 30s you know 30s white supremacist way it's a 70s black exploitation kind of way more than you know, so, you know right um so there's there's some like bad fun to be had there i guess you know, you know? um but yeah so I, I enjoyed it and you know conan is a little bit more passive than i would expect him to be in a story that has him in the title but mm-hmm. um so yeah i was not unhappy to have read this others you know and i generally sort of like slightly dread going into a decamp conan story (laughs) (laughs) sure and that was kind of my feeling going into it as well and I, i i personally feel like this book does better on its own than the decamp and lynn carter short stories do in the collections because when it's put when when a lynn carter and Elspreg de Camp Conan's story is sandwiched between two Howard stories. That's when you can really see all of the flaws with their writing style and their approach to Conan. When the book is on its own, it I feel like it it holds it, it holds up much better. Um, I do feel like the the pacing was good. We had some fun adventure stuff going on here. There was plenty of stuff that is like great for RPG stuff. So I I enjoyed reading it. It was not a slog for me, um, but I definitely feel like the character of Conan. There are a few times where like they really kind of missed their mark on that, and their approach to kind of the way Howard was kind of um, uh, writing about Hi- Hyboria. Um, this kind of seemed a little off as well. Um, I'm curious, uh, Carmen, did you also read the Lynn Carter introduction? I did. 
You did. So there are a few things Lynn Carter said in the introduction that I would love to see what you guys think about. Um, he says, sword and sorcery is sheer escapist reading, nothing more. It has no hidden meanings. It offers no handy prepackaged solution to any of the world's numerous ills. It has no ism or ology to sell, no message to put over. And then later on, he's talking about how like in writing at the time, presumably like 1971, um, that people feel that the hero should be a Negro striving to free his people, a homosexual gaily battling for social recognition, or an American uh, or an Amerindian getting back at the pale skins by seizing control of Alcatraz. Um, I, I'm, I'm curious, do you, um, do you agree with Lynn Carter's view of sword and sorcery as something that really has no allegory and no message? The artist doesn't necessarily always know what they're channeling. Um, and you can pull more meaning from a work than the artist might have consciously put in. Mm-hmm. Um, also, I want to gaily battle everything. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um. <laughs> yeah. I, I, um, well, yeah. Hoy, what do you think? Um, I think two things. I think, uh, Carmen, you're very on point. I think that Carter uh, is interesting to me for a couple of reasons, because I think he's a very intelligent man, but he's not particularly deep man by what I can see from his various writings. Mm-hmm. Um, he was also an advertising man for I guess, 10, 20 years of his career until he became a full-time writer. So I think in some sense, this um, introduction is almost a marketing thing it's like okay this is the kind of person who's going to pick up this thing on the spinner rack so i'm going to tell them it's okay for them to read this for (laughs) you know and not to have to think about all the stuff that's going on in 1971 which is you know a lot right yeah (laughs) it's a time of a lot of turmoil right so i think that that's part of what he's doing uh part of it as as you say i mean i think he does sort of actually believe this but he may be just a little bit little little bit more wink wink nudge nudge than is you know readily evident in that text. Um, yeah. But again, I don't think he's particularly deep. I think he's intelligent, but not deep. So, you know. Yeah, yeah. I think that's a, a really clever insight that, you know, in 1971, perhaps it was a marketing ploy to be like, you know, hey, there's all this crazy stuff going on in the world, but if you pick up Lancer's most recent Conan the <laughs> Buccaneer, you can escape all of that. So, yeah, perhaps that's kind of the goal of what he was going with. Um, I'm not sure, but in my opinion, um, sword and sorcery is not free from allegory and free from hidden messages and meanings. I feel like uh, Howard's Conan has a lot of allegories and messages about um, um, civilization um, and kind of the um, the corroding effect of civilization on um, humanity in some ways. And then I feel like Fritz Leiber also has a lot of messages in his like Thafford and Grey Mouser stories, like commentary on marriage and commentary on um, capitalism. I, I feel like a lot of our kind of like core sort of sorcery stories are all, often um, talking about something else beneath the surface mm-hmm. of what's going mm-hmm. on. And, and interestingly, also, the origin of sword and sorcery was also in a time of great social upheaval, you know, the Great Depression. Um, and obviously... Liber and Howard are coming at it from different directions. Howard coming from an incredibly rural background, you know, a town that he'd never left for any length of time in his, you know, very short life, whereas Liber was very cosmopolitan, had traveled around the country, you know, had lived in big cities, had been a, you know, a theologian, you know, a seminary student. 
Um, so he might have had a little bit more sort of, um, I put worldly with it, air quotes around it, worldly perspective on this. Um, so, and then 35 years later, another time of upheaval, but the essential uh, social fabric was not necessarily unraveling. It was just being re- attempting to be reallocated, whereas in the 1930s, no one knew what was going to happen next, right? And maybe just like now. So, um, so I would be interested now, yes, what people, and now certainly more writers are feeling free to say, I can tell sword and sorcery stories or do sword and sorcery art, but with something that speaks to me. I can have a warrior woman who looks like a warrior woman who is not popping out of her, you know, chainmail bikini. I can have, you know, I can have a person of color, uh, a gay or trans sword and sorcery uh, protagonist, right? And I can say those things that are important to me, but in a sword and sorcery format, right? Yeah, and, like, storytelling has always been, uh, you know, and this is one of the reasons why a lot of folk tales survived when other aspects of culture were suppressed, it's a way of talking sideways about a major issue in a way that's palatable uh, to people. And these things get carried on. Um, So you have like a major archetype like Conan um, and you can talk about him and social issues in a way that people don't instantly put up a defense against Mm -hmm. because, you know, you can talk at somebody or you can talk to someone Um, Mm -hmm. You know, and I think part of the introduction, too, was, um, you know, we're coming out of, I guess, it's 70s, so it's Bronze Age. But, like, you're still feeling um, the sort of the end of the Silver Age comic book era when, and I love this era because of the comic books code. They had to make things educational. So you would have these random non sequiturs of just like science bits. Right. <laughs> um, uh, so I, I think trying to, you, you see it in sci-fi and fantasy too, people trying to justify their love of something. Um, Cause it's not like a legitimate book. It's not literature, um, you know, and just being able to step back and enjoy that too. So, yeah. you know, we're, we're talking about the big issues, but it's in something you know, 191 pages of digestible issue. Right. Yeah. And then you get some people pushing back. And I think role-playing might be in that same moment that you're talking about right now, right? Because we're talking about people talking about um, the therapeutic of properties of role-playing, the community-building properties of role-playing, all that. And then some people are like, no, nah, I just want to kill monsters, you know? And like, how dare you bring your social justice concerns like, into my role-playing it's game? It's fine to just kill monsters, <laughs> right. but also you're getting these side benefits, you right. know? Right. Um, and it, it's all good, you right. know? Right, right. So, um, so I think we're having that moment, you know, 40 years on, the same way that comics did. And these other, you know, it's because it's a newer medium than comics, yeah. obviously. So it comes along a little later. Um, and, and you know, I think we're still very early in the development of the role-playing medium, obviously, although Dungeons & Dragons will still be sort of this umbrella over all of it, you know. But, but it's kind of exploded, like the Cretaceous period. And right, you exactly. have all these, like, you have all these role-playing systems that right. nobody ever thought of, you know, right. and people combining, like, story gaming and RPGs. And, right, right. You know, right. Uh, like, Jeff, you're doing Queering the Dungeon, and, you know, yeah. that's, like, another where you yes, you're killing monsters, but also you're <laughs> really thinking about, um, you know, gender norms and 
it's it's a little more intellectual. It's a little more highbrow. So yeah, like I don't know what role playing games are going to look like in five or ten years, but I'm really excited. You know. Yeah. Yeah. Likewise. So I think we inverted we inverted this conversation. So we can keep on role playing and talk about the books on the backside of this. But, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. But uh, but you know. But yeah. So with Conan the Buccaneer. Um, Carmen, what about this text like really kind of like leapt out at you? Um, like Hoy, I love the seafaring bits. They're, yeah. um, I mean, they they really, really just plunge you right into the atmosphere. Um, the description of the temple on the nameless island was yeah. just, it was so visceral. Um, so like a lot of the setting uh, really pulled me in. And yeah, yeah, I think that was it. How about you, Hoy? Um, the seafaring stuff I liked. I liked the, um, although it was, you know, certainly problematic, I did like that he differentiated the various, you know, a- Africa analog cultures, right? So that there is this uh, Amazon culture, there is Juma's tribe that came back, and then there's this, you know, the slaver culture, which seems maybe like, Maybe they're Sudanese or Somalian. So they're, they're differentiated. It's not just, oh, here's a bunch of black people, right? So this is something that is maybe a step further than what would have happened maybe even 20 years earlier in Sword and Sorcery. Um, it is black exploitation, right? But it's still a step forward. And now we're 40, 50 years onwards, so we could do more with that. But it's to say that there is some sort of progression, even if it's not conscious on Carter's part or DeCamp's part. Um, and he does some, I think, again, you mentioned this in the Virtual Book Club that, again, I think this is probably DeCamp. Like, oh, we talked about, like, the various trade goods and the sort of um, the ways that they constructed their villages and stuff like that. So, he, you know, sure. DeCamp. Cowrie actually, shells and right. cola nuts. Right. So, it gave it more flavor. It felt like, okay, this is, although it's an it's a analog or a pastiche of existing cultures, it still felt more grounded than, oh, it's just a bunch of, you know, black tribesmen coming out of the jungle with spears. Right. Um, there's more to be done, but it's a step in the right direction, I think. And then, and then it goes backwards, and then it comes. You know, we have Grace Jones as the queen with her. <laughs> you know? See, and that was the section I really enjoyed. Yeah, I, I enjoy. really, I really enjoyed Queen Queen Nzinga right. uh, and the Black Amazons. Right. Um, it was very pulpy. Yeah. It was very over the top. Yeah. Um, and just a lot of fun. You know, I I, I also loved that. The the black Amazon warrior women were also seen as sexual objects and like, sure, you know, there's a lot of sexual objectification of women in these stories, uh, which is like not usually a great thing. But I appreciate that the black women, these like powerful black women were not seen as like subhuman in the story. They were seen as like, you know, viable mates and like something that is totally fine for the sailors to be going off and like having like, you know, uh, fun, sexy times with, um, I thought that was kind of a, a, an interesting perspective that I hadn't really seen in a Conan story before. Mm -hmm. And ultimately Nzinga, despite her, you know, rage and jealousy is a better match for Conan than Chabella. Right. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, yeah, the way he, uh, went all free bird, on Shabella at the end. Right. <laughs> this Conan, you cannot change. Right. Um, Hoy, I think you are a much more generous 
spirit than I am. This is the section that just made me cringe the whole way mm. through. And like, yeah. I, I honestly wouldn't have finished the book if, uh, it didn't, if that didn't mean letting you guys down. Well, um, you know, it's so, a matter of perspective, obviously. And I'm obviously have a certain amount of privilege that goes with it. And so I am interested to hear what you have to say about it. So, you know. yeah. From your perspective, was it more of the gender stuff, more of the race stuff or just all of the above? Um, I think to a large degree, it was the race stuff. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, the the people weren't fully formed people. Um, and every time, I, I'm just going to say this is Carter. Um, whenever Carter had an uh, kind of an expletive or a negative to say about somebody, he specifically included that they were Black. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm I think, uh, you know, the opening scene when they were all partying and it was the two different crew uh, ships crews and there were women to placate the men so they didn't start fighting. Um, they were, you know, they were there as, I, I would just call this section exotic objects, you know. Mm, okay. Um, I, I mean, Queen Nazinga, she's great. Obviously, great Grace Jones. Um, but you have this this really weird dynamic where, you know, she's a queen. She's a powerful woman in her own right. And it's just, she's so jealous of Conan's affections and of his past. And I don't know that that would necessarily be the case in a culture that seems so sexually open. Mm-hmm. Um, and one could argue that it's just because Conan is that great. He's just that special. That's totally (laughs) fine. Um, But uh, yeah, I think the description of like the men in the village as being, they're not really people. Nobody Mm -hmm. gets, only one person gets to be a person at any given time and everybody else is just background noise and decoration. I think Mm -hmm. that's really problematic. Um, But obviously like Len Carter, uh, being from the era he was, and, you know, I, I think, you know, it's a genre piece. We make allowances, you know, to a certain degree. He's he's like your racist uncle that means really, he means well, and that's cool. But he still uses, like, he still describes, um, he still describes black people as being articulate, you know, and thinks right. that's a compliment. So, um, yeah, you absolutely can have fun with this section, uh, and that's fine. I'm just going to be grumping in my corner over here. Uh, I'm glad you are, because a, a worry of mine about reading as much of this stuff as I have read is that I was going to become desensitized to it, and there's a good chance that that's what's happening here, uh, because I have had, uh, historically, I've had a lot more trouble reading these kinds of sections in the past, and I'm not this time around. So maybe that says more about what happens when I'm exposed to this level, to this, to this quantity of sword and sorcery and writing of that era. Sword and sorcery, not even once. <laughs> I mean, if I was handed this story and I was told, hey, uh, you know, this, this one just came out yesterday, I'd be like, this is terrible, right? I yeah. mean, <laughs> and, and, I'm, and I definitely would not... Um, and again, I probably, again, if I was just reading fantasy right now, even as immersed as I am in this project, I probably would not seek out a non-Howard Conan book of any sort, right? No. <laughs> right. So I guess some allowance, I mean, I'm, I'm just sort of sometimes called like the history guy on this, this version. So some allowance of it is just for historical context. Um, but that doesn't mean you should get a free pass. Um, I don't, 
I don't per se think it's a desensitization process, Jeff. I, I, I don't know. It's maybe just a contextual thing. Like, okay, we all allow for that this stuff is of values that are 30, 40, 50 years old or more. So within that, within that field, is it a viable thing on its, as its own thing? And then we later we bring it forward and say, is it still relevant now? Does it work for us now? Um, as a story, it still works. It could work with the problematic stuff re- reformatted to be something that is more acceptable now. But in terms of pacing and all that, uh, it still works. You could still have a situation where someone goes to, again, an Africa analog, but you would have to reshape it. And you could still have Nzinga. You could still have all that going on. We do know that there were um, differentiations between the various African ethnic groups and that, that there was black-on-black slavery Um so those are all things that are, are available for discussion, but that doesn't mean that we just say, oh, it's just them. That's just how they do things, right? That's, that's, we can't do that. That's the thing we can't do. And that's we- a really positive takeaway, uh, you know, and like you said, Hoy, I don't think it's a desensitization thing. It's, um, you know, I'm not here to yuck anyone's yum. Oh, kitty. <laughs> 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 I'm not here to yuck anyone's yum. Um, and really the genre it's not about fully developed, fleshed out characters, you know, not even Conan. Um, These are very flat, digestible people. Uh, Yeah. So, and, and Conan might only seem more well-developed just because, you know, we all, you know, have, uh, we've had contact with him, you know, even if it's just the movies. Right. And I think the, um, the Howard stuff still has a sort of very primal poetry to it because he was such a good pro stylist. And this one, in this case, I do think that Conan, especially when he's hanging out with Nzinga, that's definitely Lynn Carter wish fulfillment. That's like him <laughs> hanging out with his open, you know, shirt, you know, the, the 70s shirt with the hair on his chest, you know. And he's like, hey, you know, hey, he's calling to his nephew, nine-year-old, hey, bring me a beer and I'll let you look at my Playboy magazine, you know. <laughs> Ladies. so all right carmen so we sit you down for a game of uh conan the buccaneer and i hand you a stack of pregens and they're all the characters that are in this book with the exception of conan and tothamon uh which character are you going to pick to play oh um you know i'll be a good sport and play chabella okay um (laughs) she's interesting like once you Ignore how bustily she does things, which is fine. Or you could lean in. It's fine. Whatever. But like her thief skills and, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, she has some magical abilities and psychic powers. It's, you know, I I think there's a lot of meat there, you know. Mm -hmm. And she has some political savvy. She understands like what's going on. Like, yeah. you know, in the dynamic of the kingdom and stuff yeah, like that. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And also she's somebody who grew up uh, seafaring and on ships until her father decided that she was of marrying age and could, should no longer be doing things like that. But we, we get this sense that, like, underneath it all, she's a very capable, um, skilled uh, person who's got, like, um, like a, a decent skill set and some talents. Um, and, like, I mean, she manages to, like, slice herself out of her wrist bonds, even though it's like blooding up her wrists and like, you know, she, she's, she's, she's pretty self-sufficient in a lot of ways. She's less of the, um, what, what did Agatha call them? The, the, the the baby, the baby baby girl, girl. baby girl. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Cause our, yeah, our last Conan episode, she's talking about the, all the the baby girls. Um, I feel like Chabella is less of a baby girl. Right. Right. 
And as Carmen said, you said, uh, she's also thick, right? Because she's also been noted a couple times, like, when Conan and Sigurd, like, oh, she's kind of heavy to carry when they're running <laughs> up this <way." laughs> like, It's amazing. <laughs> so, she's, she's like a Von Baudet, uh, you know, uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, princess, not a, uh, you know. That's so not like a P. Craig, not, not like a P. Craig Russell, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and as you were going through and reading Conan the Buccaneer, was there anything that was really like reminding you of your AD&D books? Um, anything that just felt very Dungeons and Dragons? Oh, uh, the Kulamtu trees. Ooh. Yeah. Uh, which yeah. I don't know. I don't actually know if I've ever seen them in the monster manual, but I'm going to steal it. Because, um, yes. it, you know, it's something I would totally put in a campaign. I actually looked these up. Um, and they were taken. So this is kind of its provenance. This is really cool. So they appear in Conan the Buccaneer, but, and, you know, and before that, they were in the 1800s equivalent of the World Weekly News. Oh, yes. So it's like Mothman, Sasquatch, (laughs) Kulamtu trees. (laughs) Cool. I had no idea. I just assumed it was an invention for the story. Yeah, Yeah. same. I just kind of looked it up on a lark because, you know, (laughs) devouring trees are awesome. (laughs) Um, But yeah, I I found a really cool illustration um, from like this World Weekly News, and I'll send it to you guys. Um, Cool. But yeah. I think it's. Actually, funny that they're both simultaneously phallic and vaginal. Yes. Like, the right? <laughs> and we worship them. Right. Because yes. <laughs> they say swallow people up, right? Yeah. But then Conan rips one out of the ground and he's waving around like a 10 foot <laughs> dick. <laughs> he's trying to like smash people away, right? And all the women are cowering from his 10 foot dick. <laughs> right. Yeah. Cowards. But, um, but yeah, other than that, like, um, this whole book had a really campaign feel, uh, yeah. you know, going to the island of dread to, right. you know, get treasure and right. the wizard happens to cast the right spell and you make right. off with the treasure. And right. it's, you know, it's very, uh, it's very tasty. Can- right. Tasty and, it's, and as uh, Adam was saying in the, the pre-show chat, it's like the two parties ran through the same adventure. Maybe it was a tournament thing and one party missed the treasure. <laughs> so they didn't find the crown. <laughs> All right. so yeah that was a lot of fun so yeah no it definitely feels like a mini campaign like a four session campaign six session campaign something like that now would you allow for an object like the cobra crown to exist in your world well possibly yeah because specifically like at the end of the book this isn't like reading rainbow where i can't give away the end of the book is it no you can say whatever oh no talk about it all. okay sweet um so one of the characters specifically mentions like he doesn't really want to grab the crown because it's burnt out um and you know that really made me think i wonder if gygax was at least influenced in some part uh by having magical objects with limited charges Mm-hmm. Uh, like when it fries the guy's skull. Um, yeah. You know, so like I, I think having it, but having it, uh, like I don't mind powerful objects as long as their repercussions are equal to or greater than, you know. Right, right. Sure. Like uh, you're not going to get a deus ex machina. It's, it's, you're going to have to pay for this one way or another. Like that's right. fine. 
Uh, and it's very much in the realm of like an AD&D artifact, right? Yeah. That is kind of mysterious. It's not a, uh, it's not a run-of-the-mill magic item, right? Yeah. There's only one of these things in the world. Mm-hmm. It does this thing. And you still have to like, you know, um, the Duke attempts to use it and he's able to tap into a little bit. But you still have to be Thothamon to really get its full power. Yeah, for right? sure. And then he makes the mistake of taking it off. You know, <laughs> sure. To, to put the crown on his head. <laughs> and also, I mean, it's kind of present in AD&D as a non-artifact, the Helm of Telepathy. Oh. Mm-hmm. Um, does the Helm of Telepathy allow you to do mind control or just read, read, people's, brain, read people's minds? I believe it's just reading people's minds. Right, right. So it's, it's a much more toned down version of it. Mm-hmm. Um, but as soon as he put the Cobra crown on, he could hear the thoughts of everybody around him. Right, right. Yeah, no, I, I thought this was fu- fun, and you could again, you could you almost see like where the characters are at, like what level they are. Like Menkara is probably like fourth to sixth <laughs> level, you know. Uh, you know, Zagrano, uh, you know, uh, Zagrano, the uh, the evil buccaneer. He's like eighth level, right? He's not maybe even ninth level because he's got a ship and he's got followers, <laughs> right? Uh, you know, now, does Tothamon have levels or does he have hit die? Um. I mean, he's almost a lich, right? He's just <laughs> still alive, but he's almost a lich, right? So it's like 18th level wizard, I guess, or something like that, you know? So, yeah, yeah, no, I think it's... I love the way magic is presented in this story, too. I mean, like, first of all, we have a bunch of spells that feel very D&D in the sense that we've got, like, obscuring cloud, and instead of turned to stone, it's turned to jade. <laughs> um, <laughs> and we've got a lightning bolt spell. Um, but I also like how flavorful it is, that, like, it's always, like green like it's always like a green fog that he's like seeing the future into um and there's always like this kind of green misty component to it but it's also very not D in the sense that like it completely wipes the user out when he casts the spell um and on top of that usually they have to be like in a in a deep trance that lasts for a good long while mm-hmm. so it's a little bit more ritual magic it also has more spell points so it's more like request or gurps ritual magic in that sense. Um, yeah. And they kind of have to, you know, be prepared for that. And so that's why they have to have, you know, their henchmen, like his bodyguards and what have you. You know, Minkara is always like, he's always described as like sweating and pale, right? Even <laughs> though he's supposed to have like dust. <laughs> you know, it's like, you know, eat some more Wheaties guy. You know? So. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I think this is, yeah, this is almost, it's certainly a classical fantasy mini campaign, whether it's literally D&D, although it feels very D&D to me. I mean, you know, it's enough, you know, traps and tricks, and there's a little catacomb below the um, Zingara's castle, and then, you know, um, Chabella gets lost in there, and she's like, well, <laughs> I just gotta keep going, you know, <laughs> right? Um, so, and there's surprise, right? Conan gets surprised by the slavers, right? So he, he, he you know, he, he, rolled a, he rolled a six and not a one, right? Or rolled a one, not a six, on his surprise roll, right? <laughs> so, um, yeah, so I, I think it was fun. You know, the, I still can't get over the image of Conan in a pimp hat, though, because he, you know, <laughs> <laughs> he gets like a pirate hat at the end with a big feather in it. <laughs> so. Now, Hoy, um, Carmen mentioned that she wants to steal the trees for her campaign. Was there anything that you saw in this story that you would like to steal and bring into your game? Hmm. Um, oddly enough, for whatever reason, there was a long stretch of nautical DCC adventures, like, you know, it was Stephen Newton's one. It was like four or five adventures in a row that we played for the DCC meetup group that were nautical. And it never 100% works um, because I think D&D is such an individualistic game. There's some other games that have been structured to allow for people to play the sort of like ship mode and then individual adventurer mode. So I know, for example, um, one of the sci-fi ones, um, 
one of the gumshoe ones. You know, when you're in like ship combat mode, each player still gets to participate and, and do something meaningful. It's not just like one player moving the ship around a grid. And so something that could bring that kind of thing to uh, fantasy role playing, like, okay, well, this person has this skill, so therefore the ship will be effective because of this. Um, you know, this player has this skill and therefore has so that the, everybody still gets to contribute when they're on the ship, right? Not just like, oh, I just, I'm the captain, I'm deciding where the ship goes, right? Um, so I would like to see, and I mean, people are always talking about, they want to do more wave crawls, you know, the regular campaign that I play on, on Tuesday night that you used to play in, Jeff, was the Hot Springs Island with Andy Action. Um, so people always want to do that, but, you know, dungeon, uh, hex crawls still seem to work a little bit better because they allow a little bit more individual agency. So this one I was nice, though, because Conan was like, okay, you know, uh, you know, he had his Zingaran second in command who gave him some advice about how the crew works. You know, he said, oh, who's that guy with the really sharp eyes? Send him up. And, he'll, you know, he gets to be the, the guy in the crow's nest. And who's, when they're following um, Zabrano, so they're staying just over the horizon. They can see what's going on. So there was, there was things to be done on the ship. So I would like to find some kind of subsystem that would work for that in a sort of more classical fantasy role-playing game. You know? I like it. Yeah. The thing that I want to steal is I, I like how Sithagwa's idol comes to life, and this is something that we see often as a trope in Sword and Sorcery. And I think it would be fun to write in some kind of a, a mechanic or something for DCC or for like something that would be like OSE compatible for um, when, a cha- when, a, when a chaotic cult uh, sacrifices enough living creatures to an altar it then becomes a avatar of the god mm-hmm. that can then uh, activate when necessary to uh, protect the altar. Mm-hmm. I just think that'd be cool. Right, right. I think DCC, that would be relatively easy to do, right? Because DCC, is everything is kind of unique, right? I mean, sure. right. But yes, in, an, in a sort of more grounded sort of rules-based system like AD&D or OSE, yeah, that would be an interesting thing to figure out some kind of sub-mechanic to do that. Is there some, uh, Carmen, you play uh, Astonishing Swordsman and Sorcerers, which is very much more grounded in the sword and sorcery stuff. Is there anything like that in AS and SH? Um, not specifically that I can think of off the top of my head, but uh, you want to do the idol thing, but with the Easter uh, Easter Island heads? Oh, yeah. And yes. they all rise up at once. Right. Yes. Right, right, and it's right. surprise. <laughs> right. That's amazing. That's yeah. cruel and unusual. Especially now that we know that they have like full bodies. bodies. And yeah. the they have too. belly buttons. This right. is the best thing ever. Belly yes. buttons and back tattoos, right? Yes. <laughs> but even before we knew that, it would have been amazing to have these giant heads rise up and have little bodies. <laughs> these cute, chibi little bodies. Adorable. <laughs> but their eyeballs shoot lasers. Right. <laughs> so it doesn't matter if they have tiny little arms. Right, right. <laughs> You're going to write yeah. that up, yeah? <laughs> yes, Excellent. I am. I'll get right on that. <laughs> so good. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, Carmen, in general, like, is, what, is there a gaming system that you think does the best job of kind of emulating that, what you think of as a sword and sorcery feel? Honestly, like, I've been playing so much DCC specifically because it's such a flexible system and it's so playable. Um, Mm -hmm. Like, you know, you can throw together a game in 20 minutes or less. Mm -hmm. As soon as you can round up enough people to actually play with you. Um, You know, so I I think that takes a lot of barriers away from play. Um, Mm -hmm. uh, You know, Hyperborea is a great system for like 
if I were running a dedicated sword and sorcery campaign, which I'm not mm-hmm. right now because yeah. I, I'm an adult with no life. Um, <laughs> Isn't that mean that you should have more time to do this? <laughs> I, I should, I should, but uh, yeah. Yeah. yeah, the world being the way it is right now, I, right, right. I don't. Right. Yeah. Do you um, now, I mean, you talked originally about conning people into DMing. Are you now 50-50, 75-25 versus gaming versus being a, a, a judge? Or what's your balance at the moment? Uh, probably about 50-50. I'm a little better at one-shots, you mm. know, than uh, organized uh, campaign play. Right. And you talked about originally not liking to sort of being heard or standing up in front of people. Is that kind of like now a thing sort of more that's kind of tamped down or is that still, you know, it's not something that I enjoy, like not that aspect of it, but I think that, um, I, I think as a, a brown lady in gaming, it's important to, it's important to show other people that it's okay for them to run too. Like you have to be a good ambassador for gaming. Mm. Um, you know, and I've had a lot of ladies in my game that have, then said, you know what? I should run a game. And it might be because I'm just such a terrible judge that they're like, oh, God. (laughs) Oh, God. (laughs) Let me see if I can do better, which, you know, that's that's also being a good role model. Um, I I think it's important to be visible in gaming. Yeah. And also just like, you know, getting more people to game and think that, Mm -hmm. hey, there is a space for me here. Like it's, mm-hmm. it's really important. Yeah. Right, right. yeah, I feel like a lot of people, when they hear people talk about the importance of diversity at the table, <clears throat> I think a lot of white men hear that as like, oh, you don't want me around anymore. And it's like, no, that's not what anybody's saying. We're saying we want more people to play. We want to make our hobby even bigger. Yeah, yeah, for sure. We're right. not saying we want anybody to go away. Right. Oh, no, no. Like, uh, I've, you know, I've run some games at Gary Khan that I – I set my table for six people and it grows to like 14 because that was bad. That was, uh, that I I have trouble saying no and I want to be a good ambassador, but you see a lost little person over there and you're like, of course you can have a spot at the table here, take my chair. (laughs) Um, you know, so like, yes, I want more people. I, you know, I don't want white men to leave gaming, white cis men. I want to keep them and I want to bring in the white trans men and the black trans ladies and, you know, the the Japanese American and the Amerindian. And I, I want to bring in everybody, you know, yeah. everybody that wants to play. And right. Absolutely. You know, the goal is that everybody who wants to play feels safe enough to to play with yeah, us. Yeah, for sure. So, Carmen, before we wrap up, I have one last question for you, which is, um, having read Conan the Buccaneer, does this make you more intrigued or less intrigued about going and reading more Conan? I think more intrigued. Okay. Um, for all its problems, like it, it was very exciting. And, mm-hmm. you know, it's it's less than 200 pages. It's a nice little snack. Um, yeah. I think it's important to, you know, really think about Appendix N in a way that how did it contribute to our hobby? Um, so yeah, I, I'll definitely read some more and going in, into it with an open mind, like, hoy, 
I try. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes though, I be like, oh, this one you'll I was. Be, oh, this you'll one be I was, our Jiminy Cricket. Right, right. I, was, <laughs> I was genuinely dreading this book. I have to tell you, but you know, I, I, I don't know but I was like, okay, this is much better than I was expecting. So that's you know, it's not Fletcher Pratt. So. <laughs> it's been awesome having you on. Do you have any projects that you're working on that you would like our listeners to? be aware of oh um so i am working on dan's new project the book of braxis which it, it, it's going to be a while before it comes out um but i'm also working on uh, a graphic novel for oneshi press they're an indie uh comic book company out of montana um but the project Ooh. is called best in town it's like a 1930s alternate universe magic noir uh piece Cool. cool. Yeah, it, it, it's going to be really fun. Um, uh, Smoking Worm, Tales from the Smoking Worm. Uh, we're working on the third issue. Uh, oh, nice. Okay. Uh, with Trevor Stamper. Um, doing Orcs for Mike Evans, which is really exciting. Awesome. Yeah. yeah. Um, a high-octane adventure. A high-octane. It's going to be beautiful. Like, I've seen some of the early art for it, and I'm, I'm really jazzed to be a part of that. Um, cool. But, yeah. Uh, thank you. That's awesome. Thank you so much for having me on. It was really good to see you guys. Definitely. Thank you for same. coming on. It's very enjoyable. And if folks want to find you online and check out the projects you, you've, you've worked on in the past and see your art, what is the best way for them to do that? Um, well, I, I need to set up a proper website, and I promise I'll do that within the year. Uh, meanwhile, <laughs> you can find me on Instagram at uh, madam underscore curari. Uh, you can find me on Facebook. And a friend, pretty much anyone that's a gamer and a real person. So, um, <laughs> yeah. Perfect. Thanks. And Hoy, how can folks find us? All right. If you want to uh, email us, you can email us at appendixnbookclub at gmail.com. Uh, we're on Twitter at, at appendix underscore n. We're also on MeWe and Facebook and probably a couple other platforms that are uh, floating out there. Um, and also, Jeff, how about our Patreon? Yeah, you can go to Appendix N Book Club. That's not right. That's not right at all. You can go to patreon.com slash Appendix N Book Club and show us your support there. We really appreciate it. And we have a conversation with our uh, with any patron who would like to participate before the show as well. And before this show, we had a fun discussion with Adam Stiers. Uh, we would like to go ahead and thank a few of our patrons on this episode. Uh, so thank you to Nick Edwards Andrew Sternick, Daniel Bishop, Noah Green, Christopher Murray, and Ethan Schoonover. Your support is very much appreciated. Uh, our next two episodes, episode 69, will be on Fritz Leiber's Swords and Ice Magic, and episode 70 will be on Jack Vance's Star King. So, Carmen, this has been so much fun. Thank you for being on the show. Thank you for having me. Carmen, it's a great pleasure, and we hope to talk again soon. All right, take care. See you in the stacks. Read on. The library is closed.